John Calvin said that when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Uh, The evil rulers are a punishment in and of themselves, and that they make decisions uh, for the nation that have bad consequences. Uh, And wicked rulers also lead people in the wickedness that they already want, and God judges them for their wickedness. And often, faithful people are caught in the middle of it all. That was definitely the case in Israel when Hannah prayed for a child. As we study the book of Samuel, we're near the end of the period of Judges. Israel does not yet have a king. They don't have a central government. Moses is the one who brought them out of Egypt uh, into the promised, uh, well, to, through, into the wilderness, to the edge of the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land. But then Israel failed to completely take over the land as God had commanded them to do. So they had these other nations in and around them who would torment them. Uh, Israel would fall into sin and idolatry. Uh, They would worship other gods. And then God would hand them over to their enemies. After some time in subjection, they would repent and God would save them. God would raise up a judge who would deliver them from their enemies. And then this judge ruled for a while. And then the process would repeat itself. Uh, But often it was actually the judges themselves who would lead Israel into sin. It was often the leaders who were doing the most evil. In fact, that's what we see when we come to our text this morning. The leaders of Israel are committing gross sin. No one is able to put a stop to it. It was a dark time for God's people. Imagine being a faithful follower of God during this time, You're trying to honor God. You're trying to lead your family to honor God. But all around you, the nation is far from God. And your own life and livelihood are impacted by all the darkness. I'm sure it's hard for anyone here to imagine a wicked nation with wicked leaders. It's way out there. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 226, about 20% 20 of the way through your Bible. Um, And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you're borrowing one of the church Bibles, feel free to take that home with you. You can have that Bible as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, Page 226 for Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, 
a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Let's pray together this morning. God, our Father, we come to you humbly acknowledging our own sin, our own evil and wickedness, and recognizing that apart from you, we would have uh, no right to enter into your presence. Apart from Jesus and his sacrificial work on the cross, we, we could never enter into the presence of a holy God. And so we praise you that you allow us to come to you in prayer. We praise you that you sent your son for sinners like us. We praise you that you have redeemed us, your people, that you have changed us, that you have given us hearts of life and joy. And we ask that you would help us to be a faithful people. Help us to be lights in the midst of darkness. Help us to boldly proclaim the gospel. Help us to live peaceable and quiet lives and to make the name of Jesus known in this city, in our neighborhoods, and in all the places we have opportunities to extend the gospel through missionaries and other people that we support. Father, we do pray for our nation. We pray for our president and Congress. We pray for our leaders of the state and of our city. Father, give them wisdom. Help them to make laws that are good and helpful. Lord, help us. Uh, to honor you in the way we respond to the laws around us. Help us to stand for truth and justice. Help us to stand for the poor and the oppressed. And Father, may true righteousness reign. And Father, as we look at our nation, as we look at the world around us, uh, more and more we yearn for the day when there truly will be ultimate justice, when there will only be peace and love and righteousness. We look for the day when Christ returns and establishes his eternal, perfect kingdom, when sickness and sorrow are no more. Father, as we live in the world that we do live in, uh, help us to be gracious and kind. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to serve those around us. Uh, We do pray for protection from the coronavirus that is slowly spreading around the world. Lord, we thank you that it has not been worse. And we ask for wisdom and discernment 
help people to make careful and thoughtful choices. And we ask that you would help people to avoid panic, as often happens in times like this. Lord, just help us to rest in you, uh, even as we'll see in our passage, to, to know that you're working in the midst of hard things and that we're ultimately perfectly safe in your hands. Father, help us this morning to understand your word. Uh, open our eyes and our hearts. And help us to see uh, the true nature of sin and of our own sin. Help us to see the glory of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. The underlying theme of today's text is really about Eli's evil sons. Eli's worthless sons are sinning against the very people that they are supposed to lead. But against that backdrop, we have some early rays of light with Samuel. We have the house of Eli versus the house of Samuel, the unfaithful house versus the faithful house, unfaithful priest versus one faithful priest. We'll see four main points in our text this morning. Uh, First, Eli's sons pervert worship of the Lord. Second, but Samuel's family is faithful. Third, Eli ineffectively rebuked his sons for their evil. And fourth, but Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. So Eli's sons pervert worship of the Lord, but Samuel's family is faithful. Eli ineffectively rebuked his sons for their evil, but Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. Now, that first main point is really the underlying idea here. Eli's sons pervert worship of the Lord. As we begin this book, Eli is the prophet and priest in Israel. He's the judge of Israel. And in the normal course of things, we would expect that perhaps his sons will be the ones to lead after him. And in fact, they are already leading, just not very well. What the author is going to do in today's text is to explain the transition from Eli to Samuel. How did the house of Eli fall out of power, and how did the house of Samuel take their place? And today's text is really the central explanation of what happens to Eli's house. Uh, Chapter 1 introduced us to his two sons named Hophni and Phinehas, and today we find out who they really are. First, we find that Eli's sons are worthless men who do not know the Lord. And you may be wondering where I get that. If you look at verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I really had to work to get that first subpoint. Uh, so Hophni and Phinehas are worthless men. Some translations say wicked men or scoundrels. Uh, the underlying language is sons of Belial. Uh, And it carries this idea of wickedness or worthlessness. So in Hebrew, this text reads as sons of Eli, sons of Belial. They can be considered to have two fathers or two families. Uh, Sons of Eli, sons of worthlessness. Family of Eli, family of evil. And of course, that idea of two families is really true of every person. Uh, We have a family of physical lineage, our parents and grandparents, our brother or sister, And we also have a spiritual family. Uh, We're born into the family of sin, and we either stay in that family or we get adopted into a different family. Well, the sons of Eli, we find, are worthless men. 
And what is ironic in a very sad way is that this is exactly what Eli accused Hannah of back in chapter 1. And when he accuses Hannah of drunkenness while worshiping and praying, she said, do not think of me as a daughter of Belial. Do not think of me as a worthless woman. It's the exact same language. So Eli could misinterpret other people as being worthless, but apparently he could not see it in his own sons. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And what makes that particularly problematic is they're priests to the Lord. They are the priests to the Lord, but they do not know the Lord. I wish we could say we no longer have people in ministry to the Lord who do not know the Lord. And yet, how often do we find that to be the case? Right? I don't have to recount to you the stories in the news about pastors and other people in ministry who clearly do not know the Lord. So Eli's sons are worthless men who do not know the Lord. As a, as a result, they do evil in the house of God. They carry out sin in the midst of sacrifice. Look at verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Verse 15, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who is sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Um, when you read verse 13 through 17, you don't necessarily have to know the Mosaic law to know this doesn't sound right. right? Just because it says it was the custom does not mean it was the right custom. It just means it was their custom. Uh, the text says they're doing these things to the Israelites. Uh, the priests are taking food indiscriminately out of the pot of the Israelites. Uh, then they're sending their servant to take more meat by force. And in fact, they are breaking the Mosaic law. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to read it all this morning. But if you want, you can read about these laws in Leviticus 10 and Numbers 18 and elsewhere. Uh, there are really two separate sins being done. And the first is they're taking what does not belong to them. So God had actually provided part of how the priests were able to live is they were allowed to receive part of the meat from sacrifices. So, so they could get meat from the sacrifice, but it was a particular part of the sacrifice, not just stick your fork in it and take whatever you can get. So they're taking a portion that does not belong to them, uh, taking more than belongs to them. So in one sense, you could say they're stealing from these people. And in the other sense, you could say they're stealing from God. So that's the first sin. And the other sin they're committing is that they're taking meat before the sacrifice is complete. So God's instruction, and again, you could read about this in those chapters I mentioned, God's instruction was to burn the fat first. 
Uh, and the priests obviously know that the fat is supposed to be burned first. You can tell from verse 16, the people know that the, they should burn the fat first. That's why they're protesting about taking the meat too soon. After the fat was burned, then the priests could eat the meat. But Hophni and Phineas aren't concerned about that. They tell their servant, don't worry about those rules. You know, that guy doing his sacrifice, he might mess up the meat. Just go ahead and take it raw, and then we can roast it however we want. Probably sous vide for a long time, then carefully seared on the outside. If people protest, just, just take it by force. Just don't let them slow you down. Just take it. These are the people who are supposed to be leading God's people in worship. They're supposed to be helping people offer sacrifice for sin. And instead, they're using these moments of worship and sacrifice to enrich themselves and really to multiply transgression. Verse 17 says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. These men are taking part in a holy ceremony. Uh, God's people are coming to obey God, to offer sacrifice to God. They have come to worship the living God, and the sons of Eli are treating the Lord's offering with contempt, treating the sacrifice as if it is nothing. They're committing terrible sin against God. Now, imagine being an Israelite during this time. You're serious about worshiping the Lord and sacrificing to him. You arrive in Shiloh for the annual sacrifice. You bring the appropriate sacrifice. And then you see this whole event is just a circus. Can you imagine their desperation, their desire for a faithful priest? There's darkness over the whole land. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. But then you go to Shiloh to sacrifice and worship God. You get to the place of sacrifice, and there is darkness over the house of God. God's people need something better. God's people need a faithful priest. You know, as you read this passage, you can't help but notice that God had expectations of worship. God expected people to come to him in the manner that he had chosen. And Hophni and Phinehas are just ignoring what God had said. If you're not a Christian, have you ever considered that you have an obligation to worship God? That God expects you to worship him, and he has even laid out how you ought to worship him. And if you've never considered that, you should consider it even now. God is worthy of worship. God demands that he be worshipped. Are you worshipping God as he demands? Are you submitting to God in your life? If you're not sure what it is that God commands, I would encourage you to talk to someone about it after the service. I'll be around, you can talk to me, or just ask the person right next to you. What does God demand? And Christian, we live in a day when all sorts of things happen in worship services that have no basis in Scripture, as if the Word of God had nothing to say about acceptable corporate worship. Eli's sons are the priests, but they do not know the Lord. 
Eli's sons are worthless men. Instead of leading people in faithfulness, they do evil in the house of the Lord. They carry out sin in the midst of sacrifice. Second main point, but Samuel's family is faithful. Eli's sons pervert worship to the Lord, but Samuel's family is faithful. Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Well, first we see something of Samuel himself, and then we see his family. Uh, even in the darkest times, God sends a flicker of light. We have the evil of the sons of Eli, and then we have this young boy, Samuel, ministering to the Lord in a linen ephod. Now, the ephod was a sleeveless shirt that the Levites wore uh, related to serving as priests. Uh, this highlights that Samuel was from the tribe of Levi, uh, which we also know from his genealogy in First Chronicles. Uh, but the ephod also highlights that Samuel is already serving in a priestly function, even as a young child. Samuel is serving the Lord faithfully. Now, Samuel doesn't have any authority. He can't fix any of the problems that are going on. But he's going about his little duties faithfully, serving the Lord. And at the end of verse 21, we see that Samuel is growing in the presence of the Lord. So little faithful Samuel is a reminder that God is working for good, even in those moments when we cannot see through the darkness. God is still carrying out his good purposes. God's providence is over it all. And so we can trust God even when we don't understand why things are the way they are. Even when life seems chaotic and out of control. Even when God has not yet given us the desires of our hearts. God is still there doing his good will. It's often to see the darkness gathering in the world around us. Sometimes it is harder to see that glimmer of light. Into the darkness in Israel, God sent a child. No quick solution, more like a long-term plan. But God is often at work like that. God's plans are often going on behind the scenes in ways that we do not see and then God's purposes that have been in progress for years suddenly come to light. We have the spiritual darkness of Eli's sons, and we have Samuel serving the Lord. We also see a little bit about Samuel's family. <clears throat> Eli's family is a disaster. On the other hand, Samuel's family is faithful. His parents continue to come year after year for the sacrifice. They continue to do what God has called them to do. Uh, Eli has not had a very good look so far in 1 Samuel. Uh, here we see a rare, more positive moment. He blesses Elkanah and Hannah in accordance with what they have done in giving Samuel to the Lord. And God responds by blessing Hannah and Elkanah. Uh, she has three sons and two daughters. Her barrenness is over. 
She who had been barren before now has six children, counting Samuel. She who is lowly has been raised up. After this, Elkanah and Hannah fade out of the story, but we already see in them an example of how our God works. He exalts the lowly. He raises up the oppressed. So in our text, we see this contrast between the house of Eli and the house of Samuel. Eli's sons pervert worship of the Lord, but Samuel's family is faithful. Third main point, we're back to the dark side. Eli ineffectively rebuked his sons for their evil. Eli ineffectively rebuked his sons for their evil. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So we again have the darkness of the sons of Eli. Then we have that glimmer of light with Samuel. Now we're back to Eli's sons again. Eli is hearing reports about their evil. It's a known thing in Israel. Eli knows about it. He's apparently known about it for a while. He keeps hearing it. And now we find out there's yet more gross sin in their lives. In addition to all that they did to the people of Israel, they're committing sexual immorality there at the tabernacle. They're not only sinning themselves, they're drawing others into their sin with them. They're making a mockery of the house of God. They're profaning the place that is set aside for worship to God. And Eli knows about their sin. It seems like he's known for a while. And in verse 23, Eli rebukes them, but it's, it's a weak rebuke. It's an ineffective rebuke. Eli confronts his son. He tells them they're sinning. He tells them they're wrong. But his rebuke is ineffective. It doesn't produce repentance. It doesn't produce change. Remember, Eli is actually the one in authority. Uh, he could have removed them from their positions. He could have set up structural or procedural changes to make sure these things couldn't happen. Uh, he could have brought on better assistants who would have told his sons no. But Eli just tells them to knock it off and then ignores the fact that nothing really changes. Eli fails to bring his sons to repentance. You know, there's a scene in this movie, Incredibles, where the children are fighting, and the mom is trying to intervene, and the dad is in the other room ignoring everything. There's nothing like real life. And Elastimom calls out to her husband for some kind of assistance, and so he yells out, kids, listen to your mother. And of course, the kids promptly ignore him. Well, that's what Eli's rebuke essentially works out like. They don't listen to him. Now, this isn't how this situation should have worked out. Uh, God's people ought to be able to confront one another about sin. We ought to be able to challenge each other to turn from sin and to pursue righteousness. And on the other side, as God's people, we should be willing to listen to correction. We should be willing to hear rebuke and to turn 
from our sin. Eli is wrong. His sons are wrong. They're sort of negative examples to us. Eli did too little too late to correct his sinning sons. We have two really challenging statements in our text, one from Eli and one from the narrator. First, we find a challenging statement by Eli. Eli says that if you sin against another human, God will mediate for you. But if you sin against the Lord, no one can intercede for you. And so we said, but won't God forgive all sin for his people? Don't we believe Jesus atoned for every sin that his people might commit? There's no sin that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus. To which we say, yes, all sin can be forgiven to those who trust in God's anointed one. So what is Eli saying? Well, the sons of Eli are committing sins that are directly opposing God's grace and mercy. They're supposed to be carrying out sacrifices that demonstrate God's mercy to his people. They're supposed to be helping people see how God atones for sin. They're supposed to be demonstrating these symbols of God's grace in the sacrifices. But instead of humbly coming to God as he commanded, they're instead defying God. Even as they claim to mediate between God and his people, they're actually abusing God's people. Even as they claim to bring sacrifice, they're opposing God. So coming to God for grace, they're doing the opposite of what he commands. So who is left then to intercede for them? Second challenging statement, uh, the narrator says, and I forgot to write down what verse this is, verse 25, the very end, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Why don't Eli's sons repent? Why don't they listen to their father? Now, we could say it is because they didn't want to, and that is certainly a true statement. But that isn't the reason that Scripture gives us. In the middle of verse 25, it says, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They, they would not listen and repent because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, often our first response to a statement like that is to feel like it doesn't seem fair. How could God have wanted to put them to death? Why doesn't he save them? Doesn't God have an obligation to save them? These are good questions. Uh, Let's start with the choice of these men, and then we'll consider God's choice. Uh, These men had the freedom to choose what they wanted. Uh, They certainly knew the law. Right? They, they were the priests, their fathers, Eli. They were trained in the law. They knew what God commanded. And they knew that their actions were, in fact, opposed to God. But they wanted to do them anyway. They wanted to take the extra meat and prepare it their own way. They wanted to sleep with the women. They did what they wanted. And so why would they stop just because Eli said so? In the world's terms, they're living the good life. Remember, they don't know the Lord They do not fear God. It's not like God had to stop them from ignoring Eli. They ignored Eli all on their own. If they're going to stay the same, they don't need anything to happen. But if they're going to repent, 
They need God to act in their life to give them a desire to repent. And unless God acts to bring them to repentance, unless God gives them true faith, then they will continue in their sin. But it was not God's will to give them repentant faith. It was God's will to put them to death. And so he left them to their own desires. And in their own desires, they did not repent. They did not listen to the voice of the Father because it was God's will to put them to death. We have the freedom to choose within our own nature. Uh, You don't have to tell a lion to eat meat. They will eat meat of their own nature. They'll eat as much of it as they can. On the other hand, you cannot convince a lion to eat grass or hay unless it has an upset stomach, in which case they eat grass in order to vomit. But for nutrition, the lion always chooses meat. The lion acts according to its nature. Likewise, you don't have to tell a human to sin or to oppose God. Humans will sin and humans will oppose God according to our nature. Unless God changes our hearts and grants us repentance and faith, our nature will never change. But God, in his great love and mercy, does grant new natures to his people. God opens the hearts of his people. He gives them life. He gives us faith. You know, one day God will actually give the lion a new nature. Isaiah speaks of a day when the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And just as one day God will change the nature of the lion, he changes the nature of his people even today. For those whom God loves and is called to himself, he causes them to repent and to believe in his son. But for others, like the sons of Eli, they do not repent They do not listen. They do what they want because it is the will of the Lord to put them to death. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I left out that important part about he gave his only son. Okay, let's try that again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gospel call is open to everyone. It is deep, it is wide to anyone who would believe in Jesus, your sin is covered fully, completely. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Why would anyone not believe in Jesus? It's because people love the darkness rather than the light. They love their sin more than their creator. And God is just to punish people for their sin and for their rebellion against him. You know, some people read this passage and say, God is unjust or unfair. How could God desire to put them to death? But just consider for a moment the lives these two men are living. They're living exactly the kind of lives that the world proposes is the good life. They have wealth and women. They get whatever they want. Why would they trade that life in to please a God they don't really believe in? I'm not saying this kind of life is really satisfying. I'm saying people want it. So again, God did not have to do anything to keep them from repentance. They didn't want to repent. They had the life they wanted. 
they chose a life of opposition to God. And so God is, in fact, quite just to give them the punishment that their actions deserved. God is not unjust to allow people to live the life they want and then punish them for choosing that life. You know, other people here, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death, and they use that to try to excuse themselves for being responsible for rejecting God. Well, maybe, maybe God wants to put me to death. Maybe God doesn't want me to be saved, so I'll just spend my life ignoring God. I'm not going to worry about God and what he demands. I've actually had people tell me that. The right response to a text like this is to plead with God for mercy, to ask God to give you a heart of faith, to ask God to grant you true repentance, to ask God to save you. You know, there is no one who will say, I wanted God to save me, but he would not. I wanted to find grace, but God would not offer it. I wanted forgiveness, but God would not grant it. If you do not look in faith to the work of Jesus, the only place to blame is your own heart. And if you are saved, praise God for his grace and mercy that he would save a sinner like you. You were just as worthy of death as these two men were. Your own heart loved sin just as much as these men. But it was the will of the Lord to give you repentance and faith. And as saved people, it is the will of the Lord that we would grow to be more like Jesus. It is the will of the Lord that we would become more like our Savior. That we would be quick to repent, that we would be quick to receive instruction. Don't be like Eli's sons who would not be corrected. Be quick to hear correction and to change. Have people in your life who are willing to correct you and then listen to them. In our text today, the darkness grows worse. The nation's leaders are defying God. They ignore correction. They continue in sin. That brings us to our fourth main point. But Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. That's verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. We turn back from the darkness to the small glimmer of light. Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. For Samuel himself, we see his rise in Israel. God is with him. He is honoring God in his life. Samuel does know the Lord. And people are beginning to recognize that Samuel is a man of God. People are beginning to look on Samuel with favor. Samuel is becoming respected and honored. Now, Samuel is still at the very beginning of his own ministry, but he is growing in prominence. He is going to be a faithful judge, the final judge before the era of kings begins. The judges, the prophets and priests, were not always faithful. With mankind, in fact, you always get unfaithful prophets and priests. The only way you could have a faithful judge is if God raises up that judge. What 1 Samuel is highlighting is that God is raising up Samuel. 
But as we go through the book of Samuel, what we find is that Samuel is not fully faithful either. We need someone yet greater than Samuel. As the key line of the book of Judges said, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they have the judges, and that fails. Next, they have the kings. But by the end of Samuel, we find the kings have not done any better than the judges. We need someone greater than the kings. But already in our text this morning, we see a foreshadowing of the one who is to come who would rescue God's people from bondage to sin. We can't read verse 26 in our text without thinking of a parallel passage from Luke 2. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Samuel is a type, a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. Samuel is one of many who were partial examples of what God's ultimate and final promised one would be. And so when Jesus arrives, we find that he is a prophet like Moses as God had promised. He is a priest like Aaron, though of a different order, the order of Melchizedek that we read this morning. He is a judge like Samuel, one who increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As we continue our study of 1 Samuel, we'll find that Samuel is a good judge. Jesus is the perfect judge. We'll find within Samuel a good king. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the one who changes us so that everyone will do what is right in God's eyes. Jesus is the ultimate proof that in the darkest hour, God is working for our good and for his glory. We can live within a dark world by trusting in God and his work. We can live in a nation in darkness by looking to Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. God our Father, we see in our passage today an example of evil taking place. We're reminded of the darkness of the world And we're reminded of the darkness of our own hearts. We see this picture of a glimpse of light in Samuel. And it helps us see the true light of the world, Jesus Christ. The perfect judge, the perfect king, the perfect priest. The one who will one day make all things new. Father, help us to look to Jesus in faith. Help us to be little lights, pointing people to the true light here in a dark world. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.